It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we have the distinct pleasure of having a guest by the name of Alan Harris. Alan Harris is a vocalist, guitarist, a band leader, composer, and he's also known as the Jazz Vocal King of New York. Uh-huh. It is such a pleasure to be in the company of royalty today. Alan, welcome to All That's Jazz. Thank you for having me. I really mean that. Thank you. Well, Since it's our uh, pleasure, and you and I go way back in, in many ways. And you know, Alan, there's so many things to explore with an amazing and accomplished artist such as yourself. But let me begin by asking you about an encounter that you had with music greatness. Namely, you once had Louis Armstrong as a babysitter, and you uh, were terrified by that experience? I was. I was I was a kid. I mean, I was, I was a little child, and he used to come through my family's home and my Aunt Kate's restaurant, and also a gentleman who was also the, his quasi-manager at the time. His name, name was... Um, Clarence Williams. My aunt had a child by him, but that's not the story in another podcast. He used to come over to the house and have dinner, and I remember one time he was left in a room with me. I wouldn't say babysit. I guess he was just watching a little a little boy of color run around the house, and he had a voice that was just frightening. You know, <laughs> hey, come here. and the, <laughs> Don't go out there. And the voice was coming. <laughs> and that's what I remember. It was a big, dark Frog, I thought. Little did I know that years later, this was the great Louis Armstrong. I wish, what is the old saying? I wish I knew now what I didn't know then that. So, yeah, he did scare me because his voice was just pretty demonstrative. Well, I'll tell you, it's just interesting talking to someone that even had an opportunity to hang with Louis Armstrong. Mm. There was a, a little congregation of, there was two, well, there's two congregations of people of color who are artists post-Renaissance in, in New York. One was Sugar Hill, which I live in here in Harlem. And the other one was in St. Albans, Queens. In St. Albans, Queens, uh, the homes of from Fats Waller to Nina Simone, they all lived there because at that time, it was very friendly and conducive to, um, you know, people of color who, who had money, who were musicians and artists. They all protected each other in that area. So my aunt would go up there with my cousin, who she had a child by, Clarence Williams, who had a home there. And I would be with them sometime on the weekends. And I'd see a lot of these artists who, now that I'm older, when I became older, I would read about and know that my family knew them. So Louis Armstrong, of course, who lived in St. Albans, and his house is there to this day, the Louis Armstrong house. Uh, would come by my I call him Uncle Williams would come by the house at the times so and that's how I got to got to uh, as you want to say babysat by him. Well, what an influence, uh, and I'm sure there were many other influences on your life. Uh, and and mm-hmm. as you said, there was this discovery moment uh, later on in life to like, wow, if I had only known then what I know now, kind of thing. True. So let me ask you, you, your mother was a classical pianist and your mm. your aunt was a opera singer. Where did she the was. jazz come into the picture for you? The jazz came in, they were from a town in North Carolina, a town called Hamlet, North Carolina. And Hamlet, North Carolina is also the hometown of John Coltrane, 
who lived not far from the Ingalls where my mother lived. They didn't know him, of course. And there was a diaspora during that time. A lot of people would send their family from the South to Harlem or Chicago, or whatever. Harlem was a, was a town that the Ingrams, my mother's side of the family, went to. And they would go there and set up establishments, uh, restaurants, and they would call their relatives up. It was almost like a conduit. My mother turned out at, at a young age. Uh, my, my grandmother was a housekeeper of this woman, Jewish woman named Miss Chanel, at a piano. My mother seemed to, she was a prodigy. And she took her under her wing and said, you need to bring her to New York. And that's what she did. She brought her mother to New York and she got into a school called the Performing Arts. She was the first graduating class from the School of Performing Arts. Remember the movie Fame, I Want to Live Forever? That was a school. And so because of that, because of her talent and because of her being sponsored by this woman, a lot of the jazz artists in the area not only knew my mother, they would... They would go to the School of Performing Arts and actually pilfer some of the children from there. And uh, it's, it's really wild. So that's where the jazz comes from, you know, just people of color just hung out with each other just for not just for, for social protection, basically. And that's how. You're also a guitarist mm -hmm. and a fine one at that. When did you first pick up a guitar? Or was that your first instrument of choice? It wasn't. The piano was. My mother was a hell of a tactitianer, and she was. She had that Victorian mindset, you know, where a child should be seen but not heard. And she was my first piano teacher, and she was brutal. She was really brutal because I was her son, and she wanted to let the neighbors know and my classmates know and my teachers know that I was not going to fall by the wayside. So my aunt, who lived upstairs, would rescue me. She would actually come downstairs and say to my mother, you're being real hard on this child. And she got me a guitar when I was, when I turned nine years old, but I had to hide it. I had to hide a guitar upstairs in her closet. It was really funny. My mother, this is what my mother said to me. I remember this. She said, no son of mine is going to be doing Negro spirituals sitting on a porch. You're in New York now and you're going to learn how to talk right and to eat right and whatever. So, so that's, I used to go up there when she'd be at work and sneak and play the guitar at the school. And my first song was um, Peter Gunn. Boom, 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 boom. That's all I knew. And I was headed on that path of being really uh, a subpar guitarist until, and please stop me if I'm being long-winded, okay? No. Okay. And it was raining. Now, I was in Catholic school at the time and it was raining and, and, Children at that time, you, once you finished school, you did your, you did sports or whatever you had to do, and you had to be home immediately. You didn't linger. And it was a thunderstorm, and I had my books, and they were getting wet. And I was going past a barbershop that used to cut our hair, and the barbershop would cut your hair for free, and your family didn't have the money, they would pay him later on. I remember walking past in the rain, and I looked up at this big picture window in the barbershop, and there was this poster of this man of color playing a white Stratocaster that was upside down with a white fringe leather jacket on. And the poster showed him in front of a crowd of thousands of people, white, black, yellow faces, and it said, tickets for Woodstock, boom. And I remember sitting there in the rain watching this as a nine-year-old child, just beyond enamored. I was just beyond myself, because I've never seen a man of color who was that demonstrative. I mean, I grew up with Sidney Poitier, Step and Fetch It, my father, of course, 
Jim Brown, the football player. So I really knew, didn't know any romantic warrior type musicians. And it just blew my mind. And inside they were playing Purple Haze. Well, <laughs> I remember walking in there and all of the black guys, and it was a typical barbershop, they played checkers and played records and that. They really hated the record because they knew Jimi Hendrix when he played with the Ozzy Brothers and King Curtis. And I remember one of them saying, I'm paraphrasing, said, I can't believe we went out there and playing that white boy stuff in England. They were really a monster. And he gave me the record and said, do you like it? I said, yeah, he gave me the record. I wore the record out. And that was my first real introduction of really knowing how to get serious with the guitar. And that teaches later on. But that was it. Well, that was my great... story about uh, how I became a guitar player. The, that's a great role model, too. It was. You didn't by any chance, uh, even though you were nine, end up at Woodstock? No. <laughs> no. No. Back then, you were, I, I don't even think I was within 10 blocks of where I lived. You know, that's how strict my family was. Yeah, they, they kept a tight leash on me with my schoolwork, with my music teachers. As I said, my mother, was, she kept her thumb on me until, until basically I was a teenager. So you grew up in Brooklyn and or Harlem? I'm confused. I did. Um, we would make that jaunt from Bedford Stuyvesant on the weekends to my Aunt Kate's restaurant to relatives who lived in Harlem who were of the Ingram family. And they were all related. You know, they helped each other out. They sent money back home to their... And a lot of them were agrarian people in North Carolina. They were sending them back home. And those who who had the wherewithal to go to school, whatever it was, they would help them out, the family would help them out and bring them up to New York and sponsor them. So yeah, so we would hang out with my relatives in, in Harlem on the weekends. So it obviously had a deep impact on you in so many ways because it was, I presume, a very special part of your life. Hence the recording uh, that we're going to discuss today, which is Kate's mm -hmm. Soul Food. And that's... Mm -hmm for lack of better description, a reflection and a memoir of your days in Harlem and totally. that influence? It, it, is, it is very much so. Um, it is. It, it is uh, a lot of pathos I release. It's a ret retrospective of my growing up through those songs. All those songs have some sort of linkage to a childhood memory. You know, walking past hustlers and pimps. Uh, the Black Panther Party was right down the street from where we lived. They, they had a black, and I used to walk past them every day and they used to school children about black history and that. Um, there was the numbers, if you know what the numbers are, people who do the numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, they used to eat at my aunt's restaurant. And, used to, and when I was growing up, it was an unwritten law that children were not touched. You know, especially ch children were not admonished. Children even though you did walk the streets and there was mobsters and drug dealers because a big crack epidemic at that time, children were protected even by those who were involved in, in uh, illegal uh, businesses. So you passed by these kids, these, these people, and they would know who you were, they knew your family. And the songs that I put on Kate Soul Food reflect that, that, um, that feeling and that uh, emotions that I had as a child growing up, being amongst those people, but not being touched by them. The name Kate's Soul Food mm. is because this is uh, an homage to your Aunt Kate, who yes. owned a soul food restaurant. 
Yes. There's um there's a record uh, by Jimmy Smith called Home Cooking. He's in front of he's in front of the restaurant. Oh. If you look at the cover, that's the front of my aunt's restaurant. He's in front of it. He used to come there all the time and eat. And it was uh, appropriately located right around the corner from the Apollo. Couldn't, it couldn't was, get any it better. It was so close that artists would come in their bathrobes between shows, get their favorite food, and and shuffle it back to their dressing room. That's how close it was. So let me ask you before we jump into Kate's Soul Food, I guess history of your becoming a vocalist, when did you start singing? We obviously have identified you as a, a closet guitar player, <laughs> but uh, what about the vocals? Where did that come in? It came about, uh, like I said, it was at the time that I was growing up, it was right after the civil rights. And so segregation was in vogue. So they wanted to take, what they did was they perused all the boroughs in New York John Lindsley was the gov was the mayor at the time. And they said we're gonna take from each district, Brooklyn, Harlem, Queens, whatever, we're gonna find talented black children who can intermesh with white children and give them a neoclassical upbringing. And I was part of that through my mother, of course. I don't think I really warned it at the time. I think just my mother's influence helped me. So I went to a school called St. Matthews. In that school, every week, they would have maybe three or four children who would get up and recite something. You do a poem, you had to write, you had to sing or play an instrument. My mother said I was going to sing a song. I said, mm. so she made, I know, for about a, a month, she drilled me at least once a day on the song I was going to sing. And it was a song called Blue Velvet. She wore blue velvet. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Bluer than velvet was an eye. That was a song. I had a real high, shrill voice. It was weird. So she said, you're going to do this. You're going to make me look good. I said, oh, ma. So I sang it, and they used to call us Master Harris, Master. That's how the nuns uh, talked to us children. And it was my turn. It was alphabetical order that you went in. The H's came up. It was on a Thursday, I remember. And I got up in front of the class. And, of course, I was being admonished by all my peers because, you know, we were just goofballs in third grade. So I remember getting up in front of the class, and I opened up and started to sing Blue Velvet. And I think I did a couple of uh, phrases. And the nun, her name was Sister Frances Anthony, who was wonderful, I remember. She stopped me. She actually stopped me. And she said, just stand right there. She went and got the principal and a couple of the other nuns. They came up. They made me sing the song again. And I looked over at my peers, my classmates, and all of them, all of them looked at me like they were because they had no idea that I, I sang. I didn't even know. And I saw their mouths were open. And I had this one. <laughs> there was a one girl there named Adrian King who I was enamored with. I was trying to impress her, and this did it. <laughs> and, and so they made me sing the song over. And from that moment on, I, I think the bell went off in me as most instrumentalists. And there's a moment in your development that you realize, I'm cool. <laughs> I'm cool with my friends. Yeah. So I think that embarked me on this journey. My voice really didn't develop its nuances and its timbre the way it is telling the story until I, I really started playing bands, which was the latter part of my teenage years. Up until then, I was just playing guitar and rock and roll and that. So I, I think it was just later on in my uh, teenage years, adolescence and that, that I really started to develop myself as a vocalist. Prior to that, I, was, I just had a cute voice. That's what it was. So that's how I became a singer. Uh, it's gone from cute to exquisite. Uh, I hope so. I've, no. you know, I've worked on it. 
Was Nat King Cole actually an influence for you? Who? Who? Nat King Cole? Never heard of him. Never heard of him, huh? <laughs> yes, he was. He was a very big influence. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, it, it, he, he became influence as, as I got older. He was always in, in the recesses of my mind. He was a bigger influence in my family because he was always played in the house. And my mother, my, my, I keep going back to my mother. I don't sound like a mama's boy here, which I'm not, I'm not. Anyway. <laughs> my mother would say, if you're going to sing, because I listen to a lot of Motown and a lot of rock and roll and funk music. And my mother would come into the room with me and just say, I understand that you want to sing all this stuff by Marvin Gaye and you want to do Earth, Wind and Fire and Jimmy, what's his name? Sir Hendrix's mom, Jimmy, whatever his name. She said, I know you want to sing all that stuff, son, but you really know how to pronounce. You really know how to, really, really must understand how to sing a melody. And you really must know how to tell, tell a story. And I have to give her credit for that. She would sit down with me and take the songs that I would like and she would tear them apart. Not only would she tear them apart, she would bring out of her discography and she had a vast one of artists such as Billy Eckstein or Nat King Cole, even Doris Day. And she would let me sit down and hear them, hear these recordings and say to me, I want you to know how to pronounce and to deliver a song the way they do. Eventually, you can move into what you want to do. But right now, I think the lessons that you need to learn if you want to be a vocalist is how to deliver a melody and to stay true to it. And Nakin Cole was one of the male vocals that she kept bringing up, along with Brooke Benton and a couple others. But next, she said, I want you to listen to Nakin Cole. And if you're going to sing this song, I want you to sing it the way he does it. Exactly. And learn how to phrase and learn how to say this instead of this. You know, so, pronounce your words, pronounce your vowels, and use it in the songs. And I think that's carried on to my adulthood. So yes, Nat King Cole was an influence. Well, and of course, you, you even did a release, Long Live the King. I did. And I did. That was pretty daunting, let me tell you. It was a lot of, I did that live at the Kennedy Center. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Harris. Yes, it's only a paper moon Sailing over a cardboard scene But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me Yes, it's only a canvas They tried to tell us we're too young Too young to really be in love they say that love's a word A word we've only heard Unforgettable That's what you are Unforgettable Though near or far it was a lot of fun. It was years ago, it, you know, it's mo most artists and musicians, when we, we, it's hard for us to listen to things we did when we were young, you know, because we wish we could go back and redo it because we're at a different point in our life now. 
I listen to it now and a lot of friends and fans enjoy it, but I can't listen to it all the way because I'm at a point in my life now where I can tell those stories that I sang a lot differently and whatever better is, you know, I could, I could deliver them better, but thanks. I like that record too. And you know, what's great about it is that yourself and Gregory Porter are two vocalists that have taken on the challenge of Nat King Cole and mm. have delivered. You both have the same producer. We do. We do. And that, believe it or not, ironically enough, that wasn't planned. That was just serendipitous. That really was. And I'm going to have to, it seems like I have a lot of influence with women in my life. So I'm going to turn this, I'm going to give kudos to my wife. I was doing that. I was invited to do the NAMM show a couple years ago. And I did a thing with, I'm a D'Angelico artist. You know, they, they give me guitars and that. It's great. And they'll send me guitar. And, and I was doing a showcase for them in D'Angelico. And um, there was a brochure of between shows as a brew, you can go see things, performances by local artists. And my wife runs up to me between the the class that I was gonna do. She says, Kamal Kenyatta's doing a master class here. I said, Kamal Kenyatta? I said, Gregory Porter's producer? She says, yeah. She says, she says, I always want, I always want you to meet him. That's why I was like, oh really? She said, well, she says, I always want you to meet him, Alan. I said, okay. So she went and she got him. And uh, I don't know how she did, but I guess that's the power of women, man. They're, they're, you know, they're, it's unbelievable. She brought him to the class. He sat there. And at the end of the class, I went to one of his shows. And the next thing you know, here we are, circuit it up. A year and a half later, we produced uh, this record together. And that's how that, in a nutshell, that's how they came about. Getting back to uh, why we were joined together today to talk about Kate's Soul Food, you had some, what, 14 albums uh, or releases that you put out as a leader. Why did you wait till now to do Kate's Soul Food? What, what was that change or the, the thing that turned on the, the light for you to say, you know what, it's time to pay homage to Harlem and Kate's Soul Food? Here. <laughs> fear uh the um insecurities we all have them i'm i'm and i'm and i don't escape it either you know just i'm at the time of my life now where basically i have nothing to prove as far as to myself you know and i'm not going to be as rich as michael jackson you know or i'm not even looking toward that as the accolades i'm at the point now where i'm really at a wonderful place and my peace with who i am as an artist so i have nothing to prove i've done tribute I've done orchestras, I've written music for people, blah, 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 blah. I decided to sit down and do something for myself and release a lot of silent demons inside of me, which we all have. And I think this record lends itself to that because there are songs that I've written on this, songs I've written on this are totally, uh, they're selfish, they're self-indulgent, which I don't think I could have done a few years ago because I'm, I'm, been too busy, too much under the microscope of my peers, of critics, of musicians and that. This record, I just said, damn the hatches, you know, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Ironically enough, I didn't expect it to be received on mass the way it is being received. I thought it would be something that I would just record to release my pathos, release things in me that I was trying to release as a, as a, as a, as a guy, put it on the shelf, maybe later on, People would pull it out and say, okay, this is what Alan has about. Little I know that the onslaught of, of uh, enthusiasm has come from it. So 
Yeah, I am. Well, and you've paid a wonderful tribute to Harlem, and it's a very significant place in the world of mm-hmm. music, uh, and and the, in the world in general. Uh, yeah, it's it's a very very special place. It, it is to you. What's what's really special about it for you? What's the what are the takeaways or the most significant things about Harlem? It is the one true place as a man of color, looking from it from from Irish people have Ireland. They have Cork, they have Dublin, they have whatever. Sweden has Oz, you know, has Stockholm. France has Paris. Italy has Italians. Every, every, everybody who's come here, who's been part of the melting pot, has some sort of linkage to a place that they call the old world. They have a place that they can look back upon and recharge their cultural identity. And they go. They have relatives back in the old world. They can go back to and breathe the air of what their grandparents did. As people of color in this country, we don't have that. Unlike only thing that we have is that in 1863 we were slaves and we were freed, and Abraham Lincoln, and that was it. So we've had to invent our own cultural identity. Where there's whether it's being excuse the expression. I'm going to go. I'm going to waste. I guess we've known each other now, I can talk freely. We've come from being niggers, to being people of color, to being Negro, to being African-American, black, to I don't know what the next incarnation will be. But Harlem is the one thing that we can look on, which is our world, which is really a place that the world looks at and says, okay, this is a place where people of color have gone and tried to make themselves, whoever they are, from the Duke Ellingtons, to uh, um, the Fats Wallers, to Nacky Coles, everyone who has made their mark in the arts, who is a person or a woman of color, has lived or been influenced by Harlem. And Harlem is a direct link to those slave fields that a lot of those people ran to and took their culture with them, took their voices from the blues, from screaming, from pain, from harmonies, from the diaspora. And Harlem is where they came and they created this Emerald City based upon that horror that we've come from. So yes, Harlem is Harlem in, in its respect is that important, is that tatamont to me. It's the place in America that the world can say, this is where black culture actually started. This is where black culture started. We had the blues, of course, from the field, you know, we have ragtime, you know, we've had that, but Harlem is the one place where we've taken all of that together and we've come and had the world go, hmm, what are those black people doing over in that city in New York Hmm. in the 20s? What are they doing over there? I like that. And it's influenced everybody. And that's why Harlem is the way it is to me. Well, I'm glad that you said that and described this for us because th- this couldn't be more appropriate time than to uh, bring this up during uh, Black History Month. Mm. And did was was there a coincidence or serendipity for releasing that now during Black History Month? For me, it was serendipitous. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even, this is so funny, but my wife thinks more black than me at times. <laughs> you know, she, she actually was in the forefront of releasing on the 12th. And I, maybe, a, I think it was a week ago we were talking and she said, you know, we're releasing on Black History Month. I said, oh, and she looks at me and she says, you didn't know that? 
I said, no, I never really thought about that. She said, I thought you knew that. You are black, you know. You are the black one of this relationship. So, uh, yeah, I didn't even think about it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad that it is being released because it adds a little more oomph to the release of it. It, it just adds a little more fire to it and more recognition. Well, didn't she influence you to do one of the tracks on there, which is called Run Through America? Yes, she was. She was. She definitely came to me and said, uh, you need to write a... She didn't put it as a protest song. She said, you need to write a song that shows your anger. I said, I'm not really that angry. She said, well, you better start getting angry. All right, I'll write a song. I said, I'll write a song. Okay. And uh, I started to pen it, and it just took over me. A lot of things just came out of me that I didn't know I knew they were there had just been buried. Because when you you know, when you're in an environment as a man of color, when you're in an environment that you have to be a certain way at certain times, you try to smother that. This song has given me permission to release a lot of those, um a lot of this this, you know, this. It's released that. I think yeah, she definitely is the the catalyst for me to release that song and to write it. Well, and you you summed it up beautifully because you you talk about things that were very topical and very contemporary Mm -hmm. in terms of what's happening in black America today, Mm -hmm. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, et cetera. And I like, I really, truly, and I'm saying this uh, from my heart, I I like what you said. One of the lyrics said, you know, it's like, run through the streets and speak their name. Went for a run in a sleepy Georgia town Thought he was safe, but they gun armored down We're gonna go from the land that we love They say, run nigga run through America Sleeping in a bed with a man late at night Killed in the hallway, shot eight times We're gonna go from the land that we love they say, run nigga run to America We're tired of singing, tired of praying It's hard to believe they have never felt our pain A revolution for restitution Let's take to the streets and shout out their names Yes, yeah And it's, see, because I grew up as a young child in six, seven, eight, I grew up doing the civil rights in New York, in Brooklyn, in Harlem. I grew up. So I've gone through the period where we were angry and now circuit it up 45 years later, whatever it is, we're still at the same place. Yes, we have faster cars. We have the Internet. Black folks, Michael Jordan and, and uh, 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 Tyler Perry, yes. Oprah Winfrey, yes. They make millions of dollars. They, they, there's one or two people who are the the crowning achievement of that. But the majority of us were still we're still trying to find that that place where we're part of the melting pot. And the '60s, I thought would would do it. You know, the, the shouting, the screaming, the protests, the civil rights thing, the Black Panther Party, the welfare, whatever. Here we are again. We're, we're repeating the same things, but now it's different because now we have our counterparts, our cousins, the young white children who are with us in the streets, which before we had, of course, we had our white counterparts with us, 
but they did it out of the need because of their Christian upbringing or because it's the right thing to do, because they were hippies, we all got high together. Now these young white children had two generations of going to school with their friends who are black. They played ball with them, they played music with them, they've intermarried with them. So now they're feeling the pain. So the, so the protests now are a lot different. Now we're being heard because, like I said, everyone's feeling the pain now. Now it's affecting not those who are downtrodden, who are poor, it's affecting all of us. So now it's an, I feel it's a new day, which my song, by the way. She wakes up to a song that reminds her how wonderful life can be. Hear a dog barking loud in the front yard, wants to play with all of those children. They are running and laughing and just being happy Playing hide and seek It's a new day and a new way to start a new life But you have to believe it I feel that now we're all, we're all looking at each other not with the have and the have-nots, which we have been for the past four years. Now we're looking at each other of, we got to pull out of this together. We really got to pull out of this together, you know, and that's where we're at. And that, in my lifetime, hasn't happened until now. And, I'm, and that's cheering me up. And you're coming from a special place, and that's what this recording is about, Kate's Soul Food. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you, you pay that homage to... Harlem and what it is. And it it brings to the surface, the fact is that your childhood is like a lot of white people's childhood. You played kick the can and you jumped rope and you you played games and and you epitomize that like the song I grew up. I played that four times in a row the first time I heard it. Mm. I absolutely Mm -hmm. loved the song. But then what a what a true identity it is of your your life uh, as a child growing up uh, and and being a part of a place like Harlem. I took the train up to Harlem, dressed to the nines, a spring afternoon, going to the Apollo. Hear all that jazz rolling down home days. Nina, Sarah, and Ella. Duke and Basie would swing, that's a fact. Jackie, Smokey, and Marvin. James Brown, Aretha never walked through the back. I grew up with the people who believed in hard work. I grew up, never heard them use the N word. I grew up. Stood on shoulders where I learned how to give Harlem is the place Harlem is the place where I live Yeah, and that song and uh, I'm glad that we put it on the front end of the record because I wanted to put it at the end but my wife and a number of the people who influenced me they said put it on the front and that song encapsulates everything that I saw and felt as a child within that three or four minute John, I don't know how long the song is, whatever you might have in front of you. Uh, yeah, th- that song speaks of, because uh, I remember as a child going on the subway up to Harlem to, to the Apollo 
with my mother and feeling the rhythms of um, of the subway, the tracks, and how it affected me. How the um, seeing those artists that I did at the Apollo and seeing how the people who watched out after me, they never used that word, the in in word. You know, everyone was the same. You know, you turned, they believed that you turned the other cheek, you helped your brother out, you helped your neighbor out no matter what. So I grew up with that. And that song, that song, I tried to express that in those rhythms and in the lyrics that I wrote in that. And I hope it came off the way it did. You know, I hope it expounds on the message that I'm trying to say. It truly does. Uh, There's no question about it. But there's like a, a touch of specialness uh, and even romance to a number of the tracks that you do. But then you do a reality check. For example, you you have I Grew Up, but then you follow that up on the, the, the track list with one more notch about guns mm. and yeah. the, a former gang member. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's, and I knew a bunch of them. You know, I knew, bun- I knew them. I mean, they hung out in our hallway. I mean, I did. It was like a gauntlet of of uh, disenfranchised men of color. Many towns, many faces seem to melt into one I made a name for myself at the end of a gun I played this part oh so long I now believe it myself I watch the clock one more notch. He called me out at noon. I knew as a child, because of my mother's position in the neighborhood and they knew who she was and my father, they looked out for me. You know, I knew a lot of the pimps. I knew a lot of the drug dealers. I knew them. You know, they 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 looked out for me when I walked down the street. They would say, hey, what are you doing out here this late? They called me Little Alan. Little Alan said, does your mother know you're here? And they would call my mother and say, so... I wrote about that in the song. Tell me about The Color of Woman is Blue. Wow. That, I'm a romanticist, you know, and I had to throw something in there in the record that doesn't stray too far off the path of what I am, you know. The Color of Woman is Blue is, um, there was a time where you know, we, all, we all were hungry, you know, we all, we all struggled, we were all trying to make our way. When I was younger, my wife and I, when we got married, it was rough. I mean, it was rough. I couldn't get gigs. I was playing rock and roll bands, making $50, $60 a night. After you, and that's after you load equipment, you know. You load your fire and we walk up to VFW clubs and play for like 25 bucks a man for four hours. And we're doing everything from smoke on the water to like hit me with that best shot, you know. So he's paying dues. So you're hungry. So I remember my wife, Pat, she had to get a job. She had to get a day day gig that was that was that was so different than how she was 
educated. I mean, she was literature. She, I mean, she was in theater and that, and all of a sudden she finds herself in love with this black guy who's trying to make his way on guitar, and she has to support him by going out and get a job as a secretary, you know? And she would come home after I'd spent all night long hanging out, playing guitar, trying to make money, not going with 20 bucks. And she'd have to get up the next day and go to work as a, in the office and come home five or six in the evening. She'd come home and she wouldn't be in a bad mood, but she'd be blue. Are you tired? <laughs> I know you are, darling. Just sit right down. You want some wine? Tell me what your day was like. Give her perfume when she's feeling lonely. Send her roses when she's far from you. But whisper in her ear, I love you, love you dear, for the color of a woman is blue. And that's what the song came came out of, just looking at what she had, to, the road she had to toe in making my dream come alive. So that song is homage to her. It basically says, and to any and to any woman who has to sit by and let the person who happens to be a man or a woman, whoever it is, who your partner is in life, follow their dreams and you have to tail along with them. Hopefully that that dream will trickle off into your dream. Fantastic. It's a great recording all in all. And Alan, it has been a uh, exquisite treat to uh, spend some time with you today. And I wish well, you all the you best with me. the recording and those days ahead of you. Thank you so much for being with us today on All That's Jazz. It is a privilege to spend time with somebody like yourself. And I will tell you that we will meet again one day and do yet another episode. I hope so. I'm looking forward to it because this was a lot of fun for me. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Alan Harris and the story behind his latest release, Kate's Soul Food. For more information about our guest, visit alanharris.com. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us next week for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.